Good morning or good afternoon or good night, uh, wherever you are in the world. Uh, we are hosting our seventh episode of Future Proofing Now, and this one is a doozy for a couple different reasons. One, uh, we're dealing with something that I think uh, when we talk about innovation, this is the, the Everest of innovation. We're going to be talking about business models, not only a list of business models we pulled together, but we've also assembled a excellent uh, group of three different uh, special guest panelists that are going to be able to talk about it with some level of credibility. I want to introduce my co-host, Andrew Cates. Uh, hey, Andrew. Hey, Sean. Excited about the webcast. We are, we should start uh, pretty close to the hour. And I think what we tend to do is have some kind of opening poll just to get people interested. And magically enough, I love it when technology works. Um, hopefully, as the audience, we're all about interaction. Hopefully, you'll be able to answer this question. Which forces do you believe will force inspire your company to shift business models in the near future? Please choose one. Um, please, no betting at home either. Uh, and we will reveal the poll question answer within uh, a couple minutes of our presentation. So, um, yeah, so please, uh, please fill that out. Um, I will more formally introduce our three guest panelists um, in a second. They hail from different parts of Silicon Valley or the west coast of Ireland. I'm uh, dialing in from Toronto and my co-host Andrea is always, although she seems to have just come back from China, is uh, dialing in from Silicon Valley as well. Anything so that we want to cover off before we start, uh, Andrea? No, I'm excited about the the future of mobility project that we were just doing in China, and it's definitely influenced my view about business models, having just been immersed in a different culture and a different set of business models, including a culture where no cash, no cash. So there, you know, what that does to business models in general, and uh, really excited about the Navrina, Robbie, and Hayden conversation today. And I, I must say, we don't always have the advantage of a prep meeting uh, in advance of these. Um, people are busy, but we did have one yesterday. And this, this topic could go on for five hours. Um, we have that rich of an insight pool of people that are going to be talking today, as well as just the topic itself lends itself to discussion. So uh, we will try to get in and out of this one on the hour. So uh, we're talking about 52 business models. And as an intro, Andrea, um, I... And uh, there's the poll question. Here's who we are, and here's who some of our guests are. Um, you know, Hayden, there's a group of either authors or practitioners or both on our panel. So uh, we're well covered off in terms of both the study of innovation and in business models and the practice of innovation and in models, uh, business models. Um, and just to get us started off, I think I mentioned off the top, um, kind of at least my kind of point of view is business models is the Everest of innovation. You know, you can improve products and services, or you can take one step further and actually try to improve either a customer or talent experience. Um, I've spent a lot of time over the last four years on business and digital transformation, and it's much more sticky and in the weeds in terms of trying to change that. But there is an argument to be made that um, there's a reason why business model change is so difficult and the fact that it is, it covers off nearly every part of the enterprise and is just not how we go and make money, at least my personal opinion. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Andrea. I think one of the biggest insights that I've been thinking about is the fact that it's something that someone said in, in the conversation yesterday, I think that triggered it. Business models are much more obvious in retrospect. And so as we're thinking about the future, you don't see a business model in all of its parts as you're moving into it. But looking back, people say, oh, you know, that was the moment that subscriptions happened, or that was the moment that software as a service happened. But as it's happening, it usually starts off as little experiments. And I call it whack-a-mole. You know, you're kind of trying to hit it one place and hit another place and suddenly things gel. So I, I think that it's really interesting that it's been formalized and that we'll be talking with people who have really applied this thinking in the field and also have studied it across multiple industries. And one of the things I'll also say is that we are excited that there are representatives from virtually every industry with us live on the webcast. And I know people watch these and listen to these after the fact as well. So we have questions that you've asked us in advance that we'll be addressing, and I'll make sure to keep us honest about that. And also this idea that cross-industry is going to be really important here because it's just as likely that an example from retail 
will apply to the media industry or that something from media will apply to a large industrial? Agreed. And I think for certain people as well out there, um, I know we always talk about digital business models, but I think business models in general, it's tough to imagine a lot of future business models not being at least somewhat digital based, but there are people out there that run restaurants and actually do stuff in real life that actually their core enterprise is real life. And I think this touches that um, group of people as well. Um, I thought kind of, I saw this the other day and I thought, wow, that's an interesting way to look at WeWork and Starbucks business model. So WeWork gives away coffee, but charges for office space. Starbucks gives away office space and charges for coffee. Certainly based on my neighborhood Starbucks, it seems like Starbucks is facing a capacity issue in the fact that people are just kind of staying there all day. But um, so just maybe an interesting way or avenue into our discussion. Um, our agenda for today, hopefully we'll do a little bit of context setting, kind of get our special guest panelists to chime in on what a business model is and why we should care, looking at different elements of business models. And it seems like there's been some, some really good spade work over the last 20 years in terms of what business models consist of. We'll talk about that. Um, the promise that was made heading into this discussion was we were gonna talk about 52 business models. And one of my friends, I don't know if John's out there, but he had said, Oh, so it's a 60 minute discussion and you're going to talk about 52 business models. Great. Um, so we're going to focus on the top 12 for the sake of seeing the forest for the trees. We'll look at future impacts, particular with respect to AI membership and digital transformation. That is the special expertise of our guest panelists today. And hopefully we'll just have a, a Q&A and also get at some of the best practices and tools and canvases and first steps to look at when you're looking at doing a business model. And so maybe we'll, uh, before we introduce our panelists, we'll uh, get an answer to our question here. I don't know if, um, and this is usually, oh, beautiful. So, um, and Andrea, maybe you're better at reading yeah. there, but it looks well, like, yeah, it's what are you? Well, what's, what I think is interesting about this is the question is, which forces do you believe will force or inspire your company to shift business models? And it's interesting that 58% are saying customer preferences which we know is really hard to define sometimes because customer preferences for the future are sometimes hard to, to, to discern in the present. And we'll talk about that in, the, in another webinar. Uh, but also competitive pressures comes in pretty close at 42%. This, this feeling that others start to, there are early signs or long tail shifts in our competition. And I think it's, spot on with the people that we'll have speaking uh, today and technology and data tied for number two. I think that today the speakers as well will talk a lot about how two things happen with technology and data. One is that there's a new capacity or capability within a technology. So things that weren't possible a few years back now are possible and that can fuel a business model. But also sometimes it's technology and data as, as a competitive advantage in and of itself the ability to apply AI or machine learning now, you know, everyone's talking about it. Not everyone's able to develop and embrace and master a business model to get you there. So I'm looking forward to having Navrina and Robbie and Hayden talk about all of the uh, customer preferences, competitive pressures and technology and data and how that can be the catalyst for why a business model needs to change or can change. Wonderful. And just the one last little tidbit of information, uh, we, do, uh, we did a study called the Corporate Innovation Playbook. And one of the interesting things that we looked at was saying, look, you change agents, oh, leaders, oh, people that are trying to make a, uh, a difference and impact in your business. What are you most interested in when it comes to innovation? And behind innovation strategy, which was number one, business models was number two. So certainly from a topic standpoint, I think there is a lot of latent interest in understanding how to do them, what are the best ones, um, when you know, when do I need to know when to switch one, so. And um, there's, there's one last piece, which is that Christian has asked if people will receive the slides and review the video after, and the answer is yes. The entire video goes live, usually with a link within a, at least a week, uh, if not sooner. So you'll have a, a chance to see all of these slides and this whole video anytime you'd like to rewatch it or share it. And thanks for asking that, Christian. Yeah, good cautionary note. All right, let's introduce our panelists because sometimes we, uh, we love to hear ourselves talk, Andrew, and I'd rather get to um, some of the people we've invited here today. Hayden Shaughnessy, um, hailing from parts unknown Ireland, uh, but uh, a global traveler, 
Um, certainly one of the pioneers in platform and ecosystem strategy. I had the good fortune of working with Hayden, uh, or at least uh, being part of something that Don Tapscott, I think, was doing uh, maybe a decade ago with uh, Hayden. He's written uh, at least three books, I think I'm aware of, but there could be more out there. Um, and all of them have to deal with some type of new framework for innovation. He's worked at a, with a ton of different companies. And certainly one of the intriguing ones when it comes to business models is um, working with them on platforms and ecosystem thinking. And um, I have the book shift. So uh, this is, uh, I'm a little bit of a fanboy here. Uh, I bought the book shift. And it's being described as Forbes as everything you need to know about digital transformation. He also tinkers with flowers. I have no idea why. Do you want to tell us, Hayden, why you're tinkering with flowers? Uh, well, that picture you see behind me there is actually a photocopy of lilies. So they're all over my house, actually. I, I like to collect uh, or photograph wilting flowers. And that's, that's to do with age. It's to do with looking for new potential as things start to grow older uh, that's the main reason i love the rich metaphor well wow. uh, hopefully you'll bring that to our discussion today all right i'll let's uh, and welcome thank you for joining us thank you andrea so excited to have navrina singh with us she's a person i've known for years watched her career over the years as well what i think is interesting is the way she describes herself is that she's built products from silicon to SaaS, which is a, a, a great trajectory in terms of how technology has fueled new business models, actually. And most recently, she's been developing virtual agents and chatbots with Microsoft. But, and before that, she was the head of innovation at Qualcomm and focused on mobile, IoT, and AI. Also a young global leader with World Economic Forum, and she's able to champion policies on responsible tech and AI. I think that the interesting fact about her when we asked is I had no idea that she's worked with Amy Poehler and Will I Am and Dean Kamen and Sherry Blair at the Clinton Foundation and Michelle Obama. She stopped there. I have a feeling that there's more. So she's all about diversity initiatives to encourage girls to choose science and technology fields. So global leader and very excited about her pers perspectives on how business models are changing. Welcome. And then uh, last, uh, our third uh, special guest, Robbie Kelman Baxter. Um, she's founder of Peninsula Strategies. She's also an author of one book, but a second one soon to be coming out called The Forever Transaction. Uh, I love the title of the first book, The Membership Economy, too, because I think, particularly with this discussion today, it, uh, it deals with at least three of the top 12 business models that uh, we're going to be talking about today. And uh, she is a LinkedIn learning maven. She's uh, taught everything from B2B to business development and a whole bunch of things in between. And intriguing for me is she's got a liberal arts education and she has a fascination with poetry. So um, you want to inform us of, uh, I know I was going to do the entire poem that you had sent me earlier, but I'm like, <laughs> I needed context maybe. So not waving, but drowning was a, a poem that uh, she wanted to impart here. Oh, no, well, I wrote my thesis on Stevie Smith, um, the British poet. And the reason that I wanted to share that is because um, it seems right now, I have college age kids and it seems like everything's going toward, you know, STEM, st studying STEM, tech, tech, tech. And I live in the heart of Silicon Valley and tech is very important. And there are all kinds of, of advances being made today um, that are making the world better for everybody. And there's still a place for the liberal arts education. So I just wanted to make that plug that even if you want to go into technology, having the ability to think creatively, um, to understand how to analyze, how to write, how to communicate, to understand the context that we're living in, I think is still a really, really useful uh, background um, that certainly has served me well and I hope uh, serves other people well as well. Yeah, myself and Andrea like to say that innovation is totally not a, a specialist game, right? You need to be a generalist and have many different tinkering skills. So uh, I'm glad you're bringing them to the table. You're also from the McGraw-Hill stable of authors. So strangely enough, uh, eight or nine years ago when I met Andrea, my co-founder, my co, uh, I guess, uh, founder of her enterprise, uh, she was also McGraw-Hill author at the time. So uh, McGraw, I don't know how many books McGraw-Hill is selling, but certainly they are doing a really good job of connecting smart people together. So 
Well, let's get into our discussion then. And I thought we'd start really large on this and just talk about what is a business model. And um, attached to a chart here, it seems to be business models, value propositions have kind of rode the wave of the internet. As the internet got popular, all of a sudden in business circles, we maybe started talking less about corporate strategy or business planning and more about um, you know, business models and value propositions. I've attached here four different kind of uh, definitions people have had from Drucker to Lewis to Magretta to Osterwalder. Um, they're all valid, they're all different, um, but I'm quite curious to know what you guys think a business model is. Um, I don't know, in no particular order. Well, why don't we go in reverse order? Robbie, what's, uh, what's your thought in terms of what a business model is? A business model is all of the pieces that come together to make a business viable. I love it. And succinct as well. So it's all about uh, elements coming together and viability. Navrina, care to add, build, change? Absolutely. You know, in, in my career, the way I've thought about business model is a blueprint um, by which an organization, be it a startup or a big corporation, not only creates value, but also delivers and extracts value. And, and that, I, I totally agree with Robbie, has so many different components all the way from the customer to strategy to pricing to the go-to-market strategy. So it really is a blueprint for an organization to create the value that it seeks to bring to the world. Nice, all right, a little bit of uh, color to it, um, but we're kind of agreeing. Hayden, are you uh, three for three or are you gonna take a different tack here? Oh, mute, I'm mute. might be muted. Oh, Aiden. Did I? Okay, we hear you. We heard right. you there at the end. So. Yeah, we hear you. Okay, every time I unmuted it, remuted, I have no idea why. But I, I suppose it might be because I am going to take a different point of view and I might even <laughs> very long point of view on it as well. But succinctly, I think that what, what a business model is really is a structure that defines a culture and that culture can be profitable or unprofitable. But I think the idea of it being a structure is really important. And, and why I say that is that when you look at how, if you look at companies' priorities at the moment, it's generally speaking, it's transformation. How do I do an agile transformation or how do I do a digital transformation? In those transformations, what they're looking for is some kind of target operating model. So they want to get to some kind of new structure and they very rarely know what that is. Um, but what they tend not to do is to ask questions about value. So they are going through this agile transformation or they're going through a digital transformation. They know they need to change their structure but they've forgotten about the business model. They've forgotten about what it actually means to seek value in a new way. So therefore, uh, my definition is something like, it's a structure that defines a culture for creating value. And so uh, just to follow up to that then, Hayden, is it more of an internal document then or an external one if it's all about culture? Well, I didn't say it's all about culture. I say it's all about structure. And okay. I, think, I think the structure defines some, some kind of culture. But if you look at examples like Hire, uh, probably quite well known by now, the Chinese appliance manufacturer, what Hire has done is stripped out middle management and it's gone to this model of thousands of small businesses. You know, went into GE, took GE appliances over, took 10,000 middle managers out. That's a structure. It's a structure that's very non-hierarchical and it yields a particular culture. And that culture is designed to do things like bring each of those small business units closer to customers and allow them to sort of see the future for customers in, in the sense that they have sufficient interaction with customers that they kind of second guess what it would be like to have connected devices, say. Or if you look at Netflix, when, when Netflix entered the European market, actually undercut companies here by about 90%, you know, really, really radical price reduction. And it was able to do that because it decided in its structure, it would have no field engineering force, workforce. It created servers that it would replace rather than repair. Well, so, 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 
Oh, yeah. I just wanted to jump in because um, when you were talking about Netflix, I think you're, you're raising an important point, which is that it's, it's a, first of all, it's a model. Um, a model is, a, is, a, is an, an, an entity, a group of systems that work together um, as opposed to something on a piece of paper. And I think what's really important is that you can't just focus on one piece. So lots of companies tend to say, I want to be the Netflix of something. They see Netflix's tremendous success and they say, okay, we want to be the Netflix of something. Therefore, we're going to do subscription pricing without kind of teasing apart what else does that mean? It means going direct to the customer. It means having special relationships with your suppliers. It means um, having a point of view about how long you can lose money before you start making money, how much you have to yeah. invest. All of those pieces have to go together to make a, a viable business model. Um, and, and I think people, a lot of companies tend to want to jump to, let's do the thing, let's change the pricing, or let's do the digital transformation, or let's get some of that AI stuff, and that will yeah. make us, you know, an AI company, and we can say that at our next shareholder meeting. Yeah. yeah, I think also what you're talking about with Netflix is very radical cost containment. Uh, being able to go into markets and undercut the competition by 90% is based on it's a very, very effective cost containment company. I'm going to move off business models a little bit because I think we, we had a good birth of uh, interest there. And Andrew, I don't know if you want to cue this up, but I mean, um, it's funny, as I looked online, there's very few people saying, oh my God, business models or business model innovation is bad. Um, usually when you have a school that comes to light, it's like, oh my Lord, this is, this is a horrible thing, at least some people believe. Not many people are do that, but um, what I am seeing in the marketplace is um, people will kind of window dress business models and say, yeah, yeah, they're very important. But uh, at least in Reid Hoffman and LinkedIn's case, he's saying, look, you know, getting it right is great, but speed is more important than anything. And then you've got a lot of growth hackers in the world that say, you know what, uh, we just got to sell hard and hustle hard and we'll figure out the details later. So. Andrew, I don't know if you want to provide a perspective on, on, and there's a Google Trends chart that says, yeah, people have been more focused, maybe a little bit more growth in terms of disruptive innovation and uh, digital transformation in business models recently. Well, I think that it's good that we've come up with a few of the words that we hear a lot. And I'm not, I'm not even going to call them buzzwords. I actually think that they're important concepts that, that we brought up so far in terms of why, why now people, as Robbie said, you know, you, you, you want to go after something. So there's pressure maybe from the board to say, hey, they're doing AI, where's our AI? Or it might even be that, uh, you know, as Navrina was saying, this notion of creating value and extracting value. And people hadn't been really talking about value propositions a lot before about 10 years ago or so when the lean stuff came out, um, or maybe 15 years ago. And then to Hayden's point, you know, this notion of targeting this, op, you know, sort of having an operating model and the, the idea of, that everyone has really reinforced, which is that, you know, where is this next source of value going to come and how is this kit of parts going to reconfigure so that it's a whole system, not just, uh, you know, and, and uh, to the point of this slide is, how do you know that at speed you're going to be able to actually have it all come out well at the end? especially with a lot of unknowns. So I think, I think that this, this slide really speaks to the fact that business models are the lead. And what I think is really interesting to, to talk to people about is, you know, it seems as if speed is something really important, the ability to predict and understand where the next source of value is. The idea, as Robbie said, of not just copycatting one element, but seeing that it's a whole. And then as, you know, as Navrina was saying, this notion of value. Um, today, you might be providing value through uh, product differentiation, but then in the future, it's the way that you bring something to market, you know, to the point of hire and other companies that have really shifted. What happened to all of those relationships with the middle management? What happened to pricing? What happened to the ecosystem that was probably holding very well together beforehand when that one, you know, I know people use this word disruption, it's truly what it is. When, when you shift one piece, it's like a house of cards. Many things fall apart. So I'm, I'm actually very interested in, in some examples, some other examples that people have seen in terms of what these leading models are doing. And I think maybe even to the next slide, perhaps, um, you know, what, what, what is going to happen? Oh, I'm sorry, go back, sorry. Uh, <laughs> number two is, you know, is, is, it, is this kind of a passing fancy 
what is it that really people who are on the webcast today needing to really think about differently when it comes to speed and avoiding the, 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 the sort of flash in the pan appeal of a business model. And maybe we'll start with, you know, actually, Navrina, I would love to start with you this time and find out a little bit about where you and your career have experienced both the, the dark side as well as the upside of shifting business models to really bring new value somewhere in the marketplace. I would love to hear a story of that. Absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've worked for two big corporations, Qualcomm and Microsoft, and um, I joined the companies at very different stages of their transformation. So, for example, at Qualcomm, the business model was set uh, way before I joined the company, and it was primarily rooted in the fact that we have a set of capabilities in chipsets for wireless that we are going to make available, and we're going to charge some price associated with those chipsets. But it wasn't really about the chipsets. It was the vision that I can connect the world using the underlying technologies that the chipsets have. But on top of that, the business model also included royalties. So essentially, every time a chip was sold into a, into a phone, there was a percentage of that that the Qualcomm would take back. Now, when you think about that model of you know, the cost of the hardware along with the royalties, it works well in a company that has been established for a long time. It has seen the market. It's a little bit more mature market. They've established their dominance in, in, in that space. However, I would say that the biggest uh, realization for me was when I forayed into AI about a decade back. And artificial intelligence is, is completely changing the game. And I totally agree with you. We can't always predict what the customers want it's only when you show them what is possible, do new things emerge. So in AI, that I would say is, is, is a big, um, I would say green field still in terms of what are the new business models that are emerging. Because if you think about, you know, what is possible with AI, and I'll take the example of building chatbots, who would have thought like, if you have a customer support center and you are really trying to do two things, one, optimize your base cost in a customer support scenario, but also ensure that your human agents are focused on higher order strategic tasks. Now there are different ways to approach that problem because first and foremost, one of the biggest components is data in this new age of AI. The second is obviously the table stakes, which is the computing power and the third is algorithms. And people don't really know what are the new business models or new ways that you can deliver value in this new AI age. So you know, from the traditional silicon model of selling hardware and having license, licensing fees associated with it to a brand new model where it could be something as simple as a bolt on to SaaS, or it could be completely brand new consumption based pay as you go, or it could be a completely brand new scenario. For example, one of the companies I was advising is a drone company. And what they end up doing is essentially taking, you know, looking at the aerial view of the roofs of homes and figuring out basically what the insurance charges could be. Now, that's a completely new disruptive model that has not existed before this new technology combination of hardware as well as artificial intelligence is coming to bear. So, you know, I, I think in my experience, it's, it's a combination of obviously what the value or organization wants to create, but is really focused on what are the new technologies that are coming to bear? And secondly, you know, what value are you creating for the end customer? And, and we are going to see more and more, in, especially in AI, which is a completely green field right now. Well, I'll do one follow-up question, then I'm going to ask Robbie a question when it comes to this notion of subscriptions as well and, and some of the membership concepts as one of the sub-models and ask for an example. But Navrina, you know, one of the things you just said is super interesting, which is with AI and some new well, it might not be a new technology per se, but you know the, the current thinking in, in AI and machine learning and being able to see through the data what's possible and being able to see the emergence of potential ways to, to have new business models based on new data insights that you're having. I'm, I'm curious if you have any, certainly not a prediction, but any observations about some new business models that are starting to come out 
that we haven't even called anything yet. Now we have the Netflix model because it existed X years ago. But you know, are you seeing some emerging hybrids or business models that are that that are made possible because of these data and technology advances? Absolutely, especially um, given the nascency of AI right now, one of the things that we are finding is it is very good at solving focused problems. So, you know, AI is not a magic wand, it can't solve for everything. But if you go in and say, within my supply chain, I want to optimize X, Y, and Z, we are seeing that it is easier to predict what those KPIs look like. So one of the business models that's emerging there is outcome-based business model. And what that means is I, as an AI technology provider or a platform provider, partners up with a company who has the data, who has the problems, let's say in manufacturing. And when you marry that two up, you can actually come up with the right um, KPIs to figure out if I can improve my yield by X percent, or if I can reduce my time to manufacture something by Y percent. And if you can create those KPIs in a meaningful ways, the business model is really around revenue share. And it is based on the outcomes that to the two partners or the two companies have defined together. So we are seeing an emergence of that. It's obviously not pervasive because we are very early on in the AI inning right now. Well, I'll give a, a little uh, punctuation to that and then move on to a follow-up kind of concept with Robbie. So I'll do a shout out to Prith Banerjee from ANSYS. And I was very lucky to take part in the Global Digital Forum a couple weeks ago. And one of the challenges was, how do you come up with a new set of questions if you're a technologist, right? So that you can have a business model, but you challenge your internal team. So one of the challenges we talked about was, what if you could have zero inventory? If you're, you know, plain English, everyone can sit down and talk about it. Okay, right now we're trying to solve the problem of how to manage our inventory. What if we could have zero inventory? What might that look like? And, you know, is our data at the point where we can inform that with uh, enough knowledge about individual customers, mass personalization, et cetera, so that you actually can predict and understand a little bit more, not have to worry about inventory at all because you're so in touch with the customer. Now that might be a little bit futuristic, but it's that way of thinking that couldn't have even been made possible before the analytics of today were on the scene. So I, I like, I'm yeah. going to push this along here just because uh, we got a ton of other stuff and uh, I, I think it's rich. Some of the emerging stuff, it's interesting, outcome-based models was mentioned by Navrina and that shows up on our list as well. So I think we're going to cover that maybe in about 15 minutes. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to tackle the next two as combo questions and maybe I'll, I'll do a quick um, kind of roundabout, hopefully you can, um, provide me a, uh, a perspective on this. I mean, hosting this discussion today about business models, really, the hope is we can actually perfect and mint some of these business models ahead of time as opposed to explain them later. You know, everybody brings up Netflix as a great business model, but nobody had the idea that Reed Hastings had before he actually went and did it. So, um, so I guess the two-parter here is, uh, one, you know, can we build these things ahead of time and envision them, or are they just good explanatory tools of once you found a good one? And I guess when we look at components of business models, there's many different competing theories. I think uh, everybody's probably familiar with the left-hand quadrant chart up here, uh, the business model canvas. You know, if you look at all the different components of what many of the competing um, canvases and innovation shops, they tend to all have the same 10 or 11 things. So my two-part question is, can we plan these things ahead of time or are they just good explanatory tools? And what, are some of the key components of a business model in your in your mind and you can reference either you know specific uh, models that you've worked on or just in general what you think um, the best business modelers nail and maybe we'll start with Robbie yeah um, so so great question you you asked um, can you come up with with a business model a new business model in advance or do you kind of just copy it or are you just really lucky um, and you know, the, what I try to teach organizations is to start with the customers, what I call a, a, their forever need. So what is the promise you can make to that customer forever to solve a problem or help them achieve an objective? And then you work backwards and say, using the technology we have right now, um, using our own unique assets, what, how can we best deliver on that promise? And then over time, how, we, how can we 
push ourselves to continue to innovate to deliver on that promise. So if you look at, for example, Amazon as an example, um, you know, they want to remove all friction from the buying experience. That has nothing to do with any particular kind of technology or even any particular kind of consumer. Um, and when they started, it was just books, and then it was you know every product, and then it was the underpinnings, the, the technology that supported it, then it was bringing the retailers in, and so on and so on, and Amazon Prime, and they keep innovating. Um, but the important thing is that they have that, that vision that they're trying to achieve, and they keep applying new technologies towards that. And I think one of the hardest things is as you get bigger, um, and a lot of the, the, the people that are, that are on this call work at very large organizations, it becomes harder to do that because there's always something that you're losing or giving up or risking when you go for big innovation. Uh, you might have the idea, but the potential risk, if that doesn't work, um, can, can throw the whole ship kind of off course. And a lot of people are on that ship. So I think one of the big challenges of innovation um, is the people that are already on the boat, the, your existing partners, your existing employees, your existing customers. Um, I, I had a client um, recently who said, um, we want you to help us figure out how to make our magazines cheaper for our membership because we do magazines, print magazines. And I said, well, you know, what about not doing magazines? What about a different way to deliver content? If your goal is to make your, there is an association of, um, of professionals, if your goal is to help them succeed in their profession, why are magazines the best way to do that? I would think there's lots of better ways. And they said, well, no, but we have printing presses and also the chairman of our board really likes the magazine. So can you help us make it cheaper? And it's tough when the chairman likes something. I don't know what box that ticks, Robbie, but- It's uh, an important, it should be on these charts. It's no, an right. But yeah. Although it factors in. I, I'm, wants it. He I'm likes gonna gather from your statement, yes, we can mint them ahead of time if we do yes, it correctly. Absolutely. They're probably, what I gathered was that they're customer motivated uh, to begin and then orchestrating a whole bunch of things around that. And I think the reality that maybe most people in this call would say is it's probably tougher in larger companies because you have incumbent process and resources and people that have done it the old way, as opposed to maybe a startup. I, I think there are, there are other difficulties with that as well, though, Sean. I think it's interesting that Robbie mentioned Amazon because I was looking at my royalty report a couple of days ago, and I saw this figure of 12 cents from Amazon Japan. Um, and it struck me that actually this company is prepared to manage a transaction that is so low in value on the other side of the world in order to reward me with some sale. And, and then I think, well, actually, this is probably the most highly valued company in the world too. Uh, and I think that's what people don't get with business model change, that, that the leading lights in the modern economy are those that manage microtransactions on massive scale. And they don't shy away from it. So, so my 12 cents came as a separate payment into my bank account, all the way from Japan. So first of all, these are extraordinary kinds of things for companies to do. It's very, very hard to consider going into a, a CFO and say, guess what, we're gonna charge 99 cents and we're gonna make 10 cents profit. But we're gonna do it millions and billions of times. But I think there's something very interesting as well about Amazon, which plays to the most of it's accidental too. If you look on Amazon's book ecosystem, there's a new profession there called book arbitrage. And what it means is that in book arbitrage, companies go and find really, really cheap books. They buy them for $2. They improve the product description and they sell them for $20. And a lot of companies doing that and people are making good money out of product arbitrage on Amazon because our <laughs> Amazon's search engine is so bad or they've not educated people to do good uh, product descriptions. So actually, if you think about it, Amazon sustains itself through its poor search engine because there is an ecosystem that sees opportunity for them. And I think that that's the missing ingredient in many of the conversations about business models, that a lot of it is serendipitous, but predictable. And a lot of it relies on these large organizations throwing off the impression that there's huge opportunity to be had by working in and around them. It's interesting. I've seen models uh, describe what a business model is, and they say it's kind of an architecture that sits be between strategy and execution, right? Like it's the it's the guidance factor. But to, to your point about Amazon, Hayden, it's like 
yeah, I don't know if you go easily from that leap of, I want to take friction of the experience to your 12 cents in your bank account and doing it at such a micro level. So I don't know if you subscribe to that in terms of just kind of sitting between strategy and execution. I, I think it's just sheer courage, you know, that, but, but it's quite widespread. If you look at, uh, if you look at Apple, it's the 99 cent album track or the almost zero cost app. If you look at Google, it's the 25% advert. But the real titans of business deal in microtransactions, and that's a very courageous act for a CEO to take on. Uh, if I may add Brina, something. Just, uh, do you have a, a thought in terms of can we um, build these ahead of time? And you know, what, uh, what are some of the big components? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm a big believer that, you know, good business models happens when you bring purpose along with luck together. And the reason purpose is really important, and I saw someone just made a comment on the chat, and I, I can't emphasize that enough, is who are the people making the decision within an organization and the stakeholders who are coming together to drive these disruptions? Because at the end of the day, technology is just a tool. I've seen that in a lot of products I've worked on. And I'll give you an example. There was, um, this was about maybe 10 years ago, we were working on an ultra wideband technology, which was going to compete with Bluetooth low energy in some of the applications like um, you know, fitness headsets, et cetera. But the team was so married to the technology that you forgot like, what the customer needs in that space were. And very quickly, we got beat by Bluetooth low energy. And the point of that I'm trying to make is a lot of time, the success or the failure of a business model rests on the stakeholders and the decision makers within an organization, as well as in the ecosystem who are coming together to push the limits. And we have seen this over and over again, that either, and going back to Hayden's point, the people who are making these decisions around strategy and execution, are they courageous enough to move away from the models that have had, that have made the company successful in the past? Are they willing to listen to new customer needs? Are they willing to not invest in technologies, uh, which just for the sake of building them, or in some cases, are they willing to take a bet on technology just because the customer does not know what they want? So a lot of, I would say the business model thinking as well as the creation of successful versus the not so successful one depends upon the brains and the people who are actually involved in making those decisions. Uh, you know, and I would certainly put that as a key box uh, in, in the business model decision-making. And maybe I'll keep going, I guess, on in terms of this question, Navrina, because you've been at Qualcomm, Microsoft, where you know, certainly if I look at Balmer's era and Nadella's era, there probably was a distinct demarcation point between we're doing business differently here. So, you know, is there a pin that drops that you've seen that you go, all right, we've made a lot of money doing it this way, but now we got to change things. Yes, I've seen both sides of the story. One is that we made a lot of money doing this. Let's not change anything because one, we don't have the experimenting mindset or the people who lead that initiative, or in some cases I've seen the other side of the story where there is that growth mindset uh, to basically foray with a new business model, but the challenge there is you don't have the, the infrastructure or you don't have the right set of people. So let me give you an example. Uh, going back to my work in artificial intelligence, one of the key things in AI um, and new business models uh, that we are seeing adopted quite extensively is consumption-based model. That is basically you pay for only what you use and for which you're getting the outcomes. But many organizations right now, unfortunately, lack the infrastructure to have that consumption base or pay as you go. So what they end up doing is reverting back to the old SaaS model or the subscription model instead of really adopting some of these new business models. And, and I've seen that in some of the big companies that I come from as well, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of leadership to help us lead into this new era of creation of business model, just because the old ways have worked, uh, you generally just stick to it. And, and so I can't underscore the importance of leaders who are at the forefront of having the foresight to create these business models, having the courage to go into these new spaces, but also having the wisdom to look back and see what worked and what didn't work and what the biggest gaps are. 
It's a tough discipline for sure. Uh, yeah. And the thing you mentioned, all these digital models, there are businesses just today that their business model is to just digitize themselves, right? And now you're talking about a fourth generation maybe of digital models that have changed from SaaS to something else. So um, very interesting. Andrew, I'll pop it up to you just in terms of perspective or where you want to take us next. Well, I, I'm actually pretty interested in uh, a, a little bit of a follow-up to that, which is um, the, a, a conversation that I think everybody could address. In looking at the old way, the new way, there's friction within an organization. The comp, some of the comments that we've gotten on, on chat are around people. You can have all the models in the world, and Sean and I would always joke about you walk in and there's some model on the wall, you know, and that usually begs the question, are the people aware of this model? Are they acting the model? How do you actually get to the point where, where an organization doesn't fight itself? You know, if you've got a group of brilliant technologists that have been winning according to their technology skills in the past, and now they're being asked to sort of listen to a new set of ways that you could bring value to a customer. That's really challenging in every single industry, whether it's a large industrial company. I know that we have people on, on the webcast today who are from very large energy companies and, and, and infrastructure companies, as well as retail, as well as um, media, you know, all, all kinds of different companies. How, how do you get it so that an organization really, Sean and I say, you know, commit, that you, you align on something, you really understand it, and then you, you commit as a team without having this internal fighting where, you know, it's the technologists against the marketing, against the customer insight people, and you're fighting, uh, you know, against that. And just because, Robbie, we haven't heard from you in a while, I wonder if, if you would talk a little bit about observations that you've had and experiences that you've had in harmonizing an organization toward a different business model when, when there's when there's clear, I love this notion of courage. When, when top leadership has the courage to say, we shall go in this direction. Have you seen any successful examples of ways that you can get the internal teams to align and commit? So Robbie, let's start with you. Yeah, so you, you definitely need a leader with courage um, because the, the team that's making the transformation needs that support and needs to know that there's gonna be consistency over time. Um, the early part of the transformation is around testing. Um, you know, we have this idea, we want to move to membership or we want to experiment with subscription pricing or we want to, you know, experiment with a usage-based model um, and see how that works. Um, that team needs to have support and protection so that they can, that they can experiment and get some, some results. They also need to be able to build momentum and know that if their results achieve certain goals, um, it can be expanded more broadly. And so the first challenge is having the people in the company that can get that, that kind of, do that kind of testing and have that kind of um, creativity, skills, mindset toward experimentation and tinkering. Second thing is when it's actually time to scale and expand, in addition to leadership support and courage, um, goals need to be aligned. I, I see, this is kind of the biggest mistake I see companies making. So because they don't wanna lose any of the revenue, and this comes back to courage, right? If, I'm, if I have a PL, um, in the old way, and you have a teeny tiny successful experiment off in the innovation part of the organization, and you want to expand it. First of all, I'm being told I can't lose any money this year. Second of all, I'm nervous that you're going to get all of my employees and you're going to take over my turf and my, my, my budget. You're going to get my team. You're going to get the prestige. You're going to get the, you know, mobile number of the CEO. And so I, you know, it, it, it means that our goals truly are not aligned. And even if the company's goals are clear and everybody in the company has memorized whatever's on that blackboard that you mentioned or that whiteboard that you mentioned, that doesn't mean that I am not gonna personally try to sabotage this um, or, because I wanna hold on to my, my feet them. So I think the most important thing is making sure that all the goals align with that, that corporate mission. Absolutely, can I add something? It's so funny. Um, you know, it takes me back to my head of innovation days at Qualcomm. One of the things I would tell my team is, and the leaders, is most of the innovation initiatives around new business models should not be treated as a rocket. They should be treated like a plane. And, and the key idea there is give them the runway to succeed. Because if you're expecting them to just lift off from where they are and bring in a brand new PNL, 
to the company I, it's, and hold them accountable for those success metrics, it's not going to work. And having that runway along with psychological safety to try new business models is pivotal to companies disrupting. Yeah. I, have, so, I have a great example. Um, yeah. uh, an entertainment company uh, that, that I was working with, they wanted to move more into um, live experiences. Um, and they also wanted to attract a new market. So instead of attracting uh, families, they wanted to attract older teens. And so they had one event, the metrics they gave the person who was in charge of that one event were very, very high. So in other words, this first experiment had to be profitable. They called it, a home, it had to be a home run. So what happened was, first of all, uh, teenage boys did not attend the event. 30 old men attended the event. And second of all, not very many of them attended. And so the company decided that that was a failure and that they shouldn't do events. So, you know, there's this book that I read to my kids, um, The Phantom Toll Booth. It's a really old book. And um, there's this place in the book called The Island of Conclusions. And the way you get there is you jump. Um, and that's where we were. We were on the island of conclusions. Like, how do you, you know, if you're going to experiment, you've got to have some failure. You've got to have some runway. And you've got to say, we are going to figure out how to do live events. We are going to figure out how to reach this audience. We're going to try at least three times before we get it right. You need to have that, that runway and you can't jump to the conclusion that is not fully supported by the experiment. So that's a good segue into um, two things. One is, Sean, there's been a request from, uh, from the field that they're getting antsy and itchy to, uh, to hear about these 12 models. Yeah, I know. So, you know what? This is what we said earlier on in terms of we could go on uh, forever on this. And I know. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to skip over one thing. We're going to at least top line the models. I'm going to pivot uh, to each one of you. I'm going to give Hayden a kind of first, uh, first chance at it. Um, and so we're going to talk about the top 12 models. And maybe you can singularly talk about some of them, maybe some of the surprises on them, and speak to your special interest of either AI, subscription, membership economy, and, and transformation and culture on them. We ready to go on this? Yeah, this ready the, to go. We have to do rapid fire. So we're not going to talk about why changing business models is so difficult. I think we touched on that. Got a lot of different models we've looked at, and I know this is kind of like the Billboard 40 of business models. We know that there is an infinite amount of models. Um, myself and Andrew put a lot of rigor in terms of defining models, looking at all the curated lists of models that are out there, and doing three things. One, um, you know, surveying a whole bunch of informed individuals. Um, so we, we think they gave us good observations back. Two, looking at Google searches in terms of what people's interests were around it. And three, applying a little bit of uh, observation in terms of that's a little bit too hot, that's a little bit too cold, and taking things up and down based on where the next three years might go. So, uh, and then somebody in advance said, why 52? Why not 10 or 30? Well, 52 is a rare number, and I'm sure this could be a post a, a week for us next year, Andrew, in terms of 52 weeks. Uh, we will probably turn this into a deck of cards. I'm a poker player by trade. And I think 52 because, man, there's a lot of challenges out there and people really need the help in terms of defining what some of these archetypes are of business models. So um, top models, and these are ranked. So I think this is the first time I've ever seen uh, a list of business models that has attempted to rank what people are currently thinking or what the industry thinks. Um, number one, peer-to-peer -peer still, right? We've seen it for the last decade. Um, I think with blockchain and a few other technologies, peer-to-peer -peer seems to be something that, you know, people are hoping for, right? The, the emancipatory kind of, I don't have to have a middleman in between. Um, certainly, Navrina, you'll be happy to know database and intelligence-based models in terms of whether it's Google, whether it's high-tech, whether it's Ancestry and uh, 23andMe taking your data and doing something um, interesting and transforming it um, is number two. Number three, personalization, mass customization, whether it's driven by 3D printing, whether it's driven by just a customer need to actually have something that's a blue sweater with that thing that isn't the thing that is what's being worn beside me. Um, you'll be happy to know Robbie's subscription as a service came in as number four. So um, there you go. I, I, I was hoping it might come in at one, but it came in at four. So it's still a really good book to uh, write about, right? So um, and certainly we've seen that in terms of all the different type of as a service and subscription things we've seen. Um, Hayden, decentralization, disintermediation. If you look at what the heart of what blockchain is trying to do, it's probably around, you know, taking kind of middlemen out and, and putting people onto um, something that they're empowered on a grid. Pay as you go and pay per use uh, was number six. 
trust-driven and certified, number seven, um, certainly in this world now where cybersecurity and a lot of investment there is happening. Um, people want to feel trusted either personally or from a, a cyber standpoint. Experience-based and service-driven models, number eight. Um, and then number nine, 10, 11, 12, network solution integrator, they want things all in one place. Um, you know, currently we have, we're talking in the hockey dressing room last night how Right now, it's almost becoming like cable again, where I have to get Netflix and Hulu and whatever Disney's going to come out with. And so it's like it's it's almost like media is becoming the same way again. I need someone to bring it back in again. On-demand marketplaces, 10, cross-selling and bundling. You see this at a lot of tech companies in terms of, look, we'll just patch on and inquire somebody and bolt that onto what we do. And it was interesting to see number 12 come in at triple bottom line. I, I really do think one of the big things around business models is accounting for a larger universe than just making profit. And so it was good to see that the humanist side of our world came in at number 12. Hayden, those are the 12. And I would say uh, from a, your own standpoint, digital transformation, digitization is really something that you do well on. What's your thoughts on the list and, and how do we play back to you know, how does digital transformation affect the future of business models? Uh, so, first of all, like the graphics, especially the one pager with all of them on, peer-to-peer um, -peer has been around an awful long time. It goes back to Napster, and I, I don't think it's ever really mainstreamed. You know, I think it's always been there, and people, people have a lot of hopes for it, but I don't think the, we're ever going to undermine the larger company business models. But I do think that there are, there are some missing, and I would say that they're extraordinarily important. And I think one, for example, would be horizontal integration. If you look at a Google, if you look at an Alibaba, again, look at these leading companies. They're integrating across industry barriers, boundaries. Um, I, I saw the other day that one of the key players in the discussion around heart rate variability is Apple. Um, when was that supposed to happen that Apple becomes a key player in the health industry? So I think this horizontal integration is really, really important. And it's part and parcel of some business models, some ecosystem business models. Look at Alibaba's horizontal integration rather than its virtual integration. I think that the, you know, the, the pure power of globalization in the digital environment is another one. If you look at Netflix, it can only do what it's doing because it can appeal to a global audience. And it can do that at relatively low cost. Low cost relative to any physical distribution that we've seen in the past. Uh, and I think then, then again, just the ecosystem, that thing I was talking about uh, with Amazon, where, where somehow, and it happens with Airbnb, really interesting, Airbnb has all kinds of companies around it, uh, key, key holding companies, access companies, um, letting management software companies. They've all grown up around Airbnb and they make Airbnb possible. So... Business executives need to start understanding that in this horizontally integrated world, in this ecosystem world, there's a lot of transformation needed in how they see the world around them and how they reach out to that world and what opportunities they provide to the world. I think that's going to be one of the big impacts of Chinese companies. There's a participatory capitalism growing in China where the first thing you do is you reach out to the community, you reach out to the customer, reach out to different businesses to try and make other businesses successful. So a lot of learnings around that. Uh, and I've lost track of where, where that question was supposed to go, Sean. What, what are you asking me really? That's all, you know what, that's all right. But I know I'm not, like the guinea pig is on the hamster wheel going, how do we get out of this, uh, the, this whole chat in an hour? So I, I caught at least three things from you and I started writing them down. We got to apply into next year's survey probably. Um, I'm going to pivot over to Navrina though in terms of the list of 12, but also your, your history on AI and machine learning. You know, where are the future business models going and are there surprises on the list that you would have thought you would have seen or higher or what have you? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Even in AI and machine learning, there are uh, similar two schools of thought. One is the horizontal players uh, who are building the tools uh, to really create the AI pipeline. Um, AI is again very nascent and especially most of the companies are very early on in their digital transformation journey. So either they don't have the AI talent or they don't have the AI tools or they don't have the AI ecosystem. So when these horizontal players start coming in with the right tools uh, to help disrupt data science or to help basically clean their data so that it can actually be used purposefully. So we are seeing a lot of traditional business models there. For example, open source 
we are seeing uh, a contract base or uh, not really subscription, but just like an annual contract base uh, business model. What gets very interesting and what is, uh, I would say, my keen focus right now is the verticalization. So if you think about, uh, you know, companies like Stitch Fix, um, and for those who don't know Stitch Fix, what they are doing is they are basically leveraging data to figure out individual users' uh, preferences and curate clothes for them uh, by bringing in a fashion designer in the loop. So I actually get a, you know, my Stitch Fix, Stitch Fix box every month, which is curated for me based on my personal preferences. And when you start looking at those kind of vertical AI applications, what's really exciting there is there's a great opportunity for business model disruption. We are obviously seeing a lot of, um, I would say consumption based, how much are you actually consuming the services that these AI technologies are bringing? We are seeing a traditional subscription and SaaS base. Uh, we are seeing a lot of outcome based in some of the more non-traditional places, for example, in manufacturing and supply chain, where it is really around, was I able to improve customer satisfaction by X? Was I able to bring the, you know, the right KPIs? So I, I would say that horizontal in a business model innovation in AI is sort of set right now and is really dependent on, on, on the companies that are basically making the tools available, but there's an amazing amount of innovation left in the vertical AI business model space, which is very, very nascent right now. Excellent. That was a good tutor first in terms of uh, where a lot of kind of stuff inside Microsoft Labs may have existed. All right, Robbie, quickly. And for the audience, we are going to go over the hour. I apologize. This stuff is too good. So uh, we'll go over a few minutes. But Robbie, I'd love your uh, insight in terms of where the future is going from your standpoint. Yeah. So so five years ago, when I, when I wrote The Membership Economy, um, people would say to me, that's really interesting, but that's not relevant to our business. Um, most companies didn't see how subscription pricing or um, the concept of a premium, premium membership model could work for them. Um, and, and today things are so different. So you know, five years ago, it was all about Netflix and Amazon and LinkedIn and mostly digital content and services and software or um, where kind of subscription models were and memberships were basically um, all digital. Um, but today, um, you know, I, I'm working with companies in, in hardware, in heavy equipment um, that are using subscription pricing, that are building digital communities. And, you know, something that I just wanted to point out or that, that's interesting to me is that when I look even at these three business models, AI and machine learning, digital transformation and digitization, and then membership and subscription models, I would say that all three of them can be applied when I'm working with, a, with an organization that's trying to move to a membership mindset or trying to incorporate subscription pricing, like let's say, uh, you know, like a, like a Procter & Gamble or an NBA or some kind of an older line or electronic arts with their boxed video games, trying to move to subscription. They're using all of these tools um, to build innovative new models um, that, that take a little bit from a lot of different places in order to best serve their own market. So if there was one takeaway for people listening, um, particularly around subscription models and, and membership, it's to start with that customer's need and then look at all of these business models and say, what is it that's going to allow me to best create maximum value for the, for the entire ecosystem, for them, for us, and, and potentially for any partners that are, that are part of the supply chain. Wonderful, that was quick as well. So I appreciate uh, you guys doing that. We're a couple minutes over the hour. Here's what I uh, suggest we do. Um, I know people have questions. Um, I'm not too sure if we've been logging them, but please, if you have any questions on the stuff that we've talked about so far, um, uh, if you panelists are game, hopefully we can actually answer them subsequent to this and actually send it out as an email to our audience. So um, at least we feel like we've answered all of their concerns and questions with maybe the depth that they deserve. Um, you know, we may also uh, include some things around some things that we didn't get to in this discussion. Um, I want to thank our panelists for actually having this tour de force. I would say just some quick updates. Our next uh, webinar is October 22nd. We're talking about a future-proofing innovation toolkit uh, in conjunction with a book that we're launching in November, myself and Andrea. So, um, so please chime in on that one. Of our webcasts. Um, this is where you can actually find this webcast probably by tomorrow. Uh, and so go to futureproofing now at futureproofingnext.com. 
If you want any of the insights that we talked about on business models, it's within the Futures InnoClay book. So that will certainly give you a free copy of the results, but we will be releasing results and potentially a deck of cards around business models over the next two or three months. And we have a guild, we have a global guild of people that are really good at this stuff. And so if anybody online says, yeah, you know what? I want to collaborate on something that's really interesting around change, great. We also have a uh, keynote that we're giving in terms of the 52 business models now too, that just focuses in on those business models. I know we said we had a Q&A, but uh, we're going to answer those on email. And I maybe just want to go to each one of our panelists and say, what's your biggest piece of advice for anybody that's looking at a business model or, or is in a business model right now that isn't as healthy and maybe needs to switch to switch and pivot? Uh, Robbie, what's your, what's your best one sentence piece of advice? Uh, take a step back and look at the big picture and don't forget about your customer. That's a really good sentence. All right, Navrina. Uh, I would say that business model really is a compass uh, for any organization to shift to higher value opportunities. And so look at all the structures, people, processes in place that can actually drive towards that higher value. Wonderful. And then Hayden? Uh, three words. So understand the ecosystem. Wow. Very deep and profound. <laughs> Thank you all panelists. Andrea, I'm going to let you summarize this and take us home, okay? I am inspired with the concept of sheer courage. I think that it's really brilliant that we included the human side of what it takes to make businesses grow and the set of objective observations that you see in the field. And I, and I love the fact that you have to feel it in your heart. And at some point, since the future, as we know, is unknown, it starts with some sheer courage and just having the faith that, that you can drive the organization toward what you know could be a new future. So I was very inspired, actually, personally, from all of these. And I think Hayden and Robbie and Navrina were really fantastic in terms of giving some great examples from a global perspective. So I, I really felt inspired today. So thank you to everyone who was part of this. Been a pleasure. Follow, Thank you. We'll follow up with uh, those questions as well. And I know they're out there, so I apologize on that. But uh, just a lot of good stuff we had. Thank you, panelists. And uh, we'll see you in the future. Thank you. Thank you.